You are listening to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And on episode 34, we return to the world of the clarinet with Carl Maria von Weber and his concertino in E-flat major. Weber was born in Germany in 1786, which is kind of the late classical, early romantic era. But by the time he died in 1826, at only 40 years old, he had witnessed and been part of the transition into true romanticism, and he actually lived at the same time as Beethoven, and they actually even met at one point. He influenced a whole generation of German composers, including Wagner, and he thus contributed a great deal to the course of music history in general. So although his early childhood years are lost to history, we do know that Weber's father was a Kapellmeister, and Weber, along with his older brothers, did take their childhood music lessons from their competent father. And a side note about his father, Franz Anton Weber sort of pretended to be of a higher class than he really was. So as you may notice in German names, there's a difference between a von and a van. You may know Ludwig as a Van Beethoven, which means he's a common person, but he sometimes would write his signature messily to make it look like Von, which denotes a higher class person or that of rank. Weber's father did the same thing, except he apparently discovered that he shared a last name with an old noble family that had died out, so he co-opted the <laughs> title of Baron and wrote his and his son's name with Vaughn. <laughs> and he also became the master of his own theater company. And it was very in vogue at the time to be an opera impresario. However, he mostly employed his own family, including Carl, and so it's really questionable as to how well regarded his company actually was. <laughs> he was, uh, maybe he was not the impresario he thought he was, but he certainly knew how to pull a little bit of a con. <laughs> Classic con man. I know, classic con man. When Carl Weber was 10, his father, ever won for fame, as we can really tell, he wished for Carl to be, quote, Europe's next top Mozart. <laughs> so to accomplish this Mozartian task, Carl was taken to meet the best teachers of the time, and this included Michael Haydn, who is the brother of famous Joseph Haydn. And he was also encouraged, or perhaps forced, to compose works, including showpieces, that he took on tour with him. And this touring was much like what young Mozart did with his father. And they played for large crowds with his apparently prodigious piano talent. And luckily for Carl Weber, he actually was a great pianist. And in an effort to boost his young son's popularity even more, Franz Weber attempted to open his own printing press to engrave and publish his son's works. <laughs> However, it never really seemed to take off. And I wonder why. Yeah, Franz, Franz Weber, if nothing else, seems like he did work very hard. Or maybe he didn't work quite hard enough at any of these ventures. <laughs> In 1800, when Carl Weber was only 14 years old, his first opera, The Forest Maiden, was staged by, get this, none other than his father's theater company. 
and it's unbelievable, but this premiere was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> However, as we'll see later in his life, this fantasy nature theme of The Forest Maiden was the first inkling of Sturm und Drang that actually became a hallmark of the German programmatic romantics. Despite the many failures to lead a parallel life to that of Mozart, the Webers continued touring Karl around and showing off his very real talent. At this point in his late teens, Karl must have decided that in spite of it all, he may as well be a musician. <laughs> Sam I might as well be a musician. I'm good at it, I guess. I guess. I guess. And he sort of began taking his music education into his own hands. Because as he traveled and took lessons with famous teacher after famous teacher, he began collecting treatises and bits of knowledge about music technique, theory, and composition basically giving himself a university education on the go. <laughs> and finally, Weber experienced a turn of fate in 1804. He went to Vienna, which was the hub of German music at the time, and he stayed for about a year and get this without his father hovering over his shoulder. Oh no! <laughs> but this is, must have been very freeing for Weber. In addition to not having his strange, grandeur-seeking father directing his life, Weber also began taking lessons with Jörg Joseph Vogler. Vogler was well-learned in the aspects of music theory and composition, and under this tutelage, Weber's spotty music skills became very well-rounded. And after a period of tutelage and apprenticeship, Vogler helped Weber secure a job as the conductor of the Braslau Theater. Now, unfortunately for the Mozart-adjacent Weber, this was not the most well-respected theater in Germany, but Weber did have grand plans to make it better. However, he was extremely inexperienced in the leadership role, and many mistakes were made. These include what is described by Encyclopedia Britannica as a, quote, near-fatal accident in which he permanently impaired his voice when he swallowed some engraving acid. <laughs> And I do want to know the story behind that one. I'd like to bring up the fact that his father had attempted to have an engraving printing press that failed. And maybe this was just a continuation of that failure. <laughs> now, needless to say, the job didn't last long. And Weber soon got another job with Duke Eugen of Württemberg as his new director of music. And the Duke had his own orchestra, and a main part of Weber's job while there was composing new works. And it was here that he really developed his romantic style, including a form that was freer than what had been allowed in the classical era. Weber even eventually reached an appointment as court secretary for King Frederick I of Wittenberg. This appointment led to an unusual time in Weber's life, because as secretary, his daily duties no longer had anything to do with music. However, he met Franz Donzi, who was another composer, and Donzi kept him inspired in continuing to compose. He worked on many songs and small works, and also his opera Silviana. And he also had a larger salary than before, but this unfortunately led him to live carelessly until he was in a great deal of debt. Weber had been steadily rising in musical fame for quite a while now, and he actually became a prominent music critic. Around the year 1810, he and some of his composer friend forms a secret society called the Homenische Verein. And this group consisted of composers who were dedicated to the romantic ideals that were reflected in literature at the time, think Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, 
and were determined to raise the standard of music criticism. And this, in turn, would make composers more willing to write toward their romantic ideals. Remember this being a transition period in musical eras between classical and romantic. In 1811, Weber's career took on a twist of fate that again paralleled Mozart's life. Weber met the clarinetist Heinrich Wehrmann and fell in love with the instrument of the clarinet. Mozart met his clarinetist Anton Stadler later in his life, and as a result, we only have one Mozart clarinet concerto. And we can only imagine the amazing works that he would have put out if he had lived longer with his love of the instrument. But fortunately, as fate would have it, Weber was given much more time and or inspiration to really give the clarinet a good solo output in his works. So we have the concertina, which was his first solo clarinet piece, and two concertos and numerous other chamber works that feature the clarinet. And he also used the clarinet extensively in orchestral writing. Remember at this time, the clarinet had not been around for a terribly long time and composers were still trying to work out how best it fit into the orchestra. Weber, however, became very good at enhancing his orchestration with this new instrument, and this is part of what made him one of the greatest orchestrators of his time. After a series of travels that spanned a good number of years, Weber finally secured a prestigious music position in 1817, the director of the Dresden Opera. Many of Weber's fanciful chamber works came out of this time, and also some orchestral works, including one of my favorite Weber pieces, An Invitation to the Dance. And it was also during this time, in 1821, that Weber began his most famous opera, Der Freischutz, or The Free Shooter. And this opera, like the Devil's Trill Sonata from last episode, is a Faustian tale where the devil gives an enchanted bullet to our hero that will apparently never miss its mark. Of course, as the Gothic Romanta era story, it ends badly with the bullet hitting the heroine of the tale. And Weber also wrote several other operas at this time with variable success. His Urianth was met with mixed reviews as the music and the story were very complicated. However, his Oberon, an opera commission for performances in London's Covent Garden, was written in English and met with great success. However, it was to be one of Weber's last works. Because for years, Weber had been suffering from the disease known as consumption, which we now know as tuberculosis. Over the years, this incurable disease had left his already damaged voice hoarse, and made him short of breath and weak. He traveled to London for the Covent Garden concert series where many of his works were performed, and sadly, he died there rather than his German homeland. So now let's dig into this concertino a little bit. The concertina was written in 1811 and is, as we've mentioned, the first solo clarinet work that Weber wrote, and it was, of course, inspired by his friendship with Heinrich Behrmann, the clarinetist. The premier concert for this piece was performed in the palace of King Maximilian I of Bavaria. Apparently, between Weber's writing and Behrmann's playing, the king also fell in love with the clarinet and commissioned Weber to write not one, but two clarinet concertos for Behrmann to play. And the piece itself is really lovely. We can really see why the king did love it so much. 
and as a concertino, it's basically a short version of a full concerto. It's performed as one continuous work rather than having movements like a traditional concerto, but there are definitely three distinct sections of the piece. The first section is operatic in nature, reminding us that Weber did really love his opera. And we first hear a dramatic entrance by the orchestra in C minor, which is the relative of E flat major. And this is then followed by the clarinet entering with a mournful and lyrical solo. Note the dramatic low notes that lead into a two-octave leap. Weber was quite excited to play with all the colors of the clarinet. And now our second section is coming up. And this is where Weber finally puts us into E-flat major that the title of the concertino suggests. He sort of sets this up as we're going along in the C minor section with a really slow modulation that eventually ends on G major, which is the fifth of C minor and the third of E flat major. So while not a perfect transition as three chords aren't terribly functional in traditional harmony, it definitely doesn't sound weird or sudden as we go from the minor to major. And in the now E-flat major section, we will experience a set of theme and variations, which I always think are fun for both the performer and the listeners. <laughs> First, we hear the main theme, and then it's almost like a game to pick what the main theme does out of the increasingly difficult noodling written around it. So here's what Weber's theme sounds like. And then immediately, there's a variation that's all 16th notes. To pick out where the original theme is, listen to the uppermost notes, where there are some breaks between the 16th notes. we get a more ornamented version of the theme. This time the original theme is much easier to pick out, but there is definitely more movement than when it was first presented. get another, even harder, running 16th note version of the theme. Mm -hmm. 
And finally, we come to my favorite variation. Weber takes us back to the dark minor mood that we started with in the introduction. And it's amazing how just a few flats thrown in here and there can take the major melody into a minor melody. And again, if you're having trouble picking out the original melody here, listen for a large leap that stands out mimicking the original tune. And now we're headed into the final movement section. Weber is very clever in his ways of weaving these two parts together. While we're still in the slow, dark section, he has the clarinet play two simple, two-note chromatic statements with interjections by the orchestra just to mark the beats. And then suddenly, we're in a new tempo and new time signature, 6-8 instead of 4-4, four, four, and the clarinet is playing none other than simple little two-note chromatic statements, with time being kept by the orchestra. And as an added bonus, this section sounds a lot like another variation of our theme we heard before. Now also in this section, Faber is really trying to build tension, and he does this in a way that I'm not convinced is my favorite. So rather than being like an uphill part of a roller coaster that gives you time to ponder your fate, he just sort of magically transports you to the top of the roller coaster hill. So how does he do this? Well, he's ended a phrase on a really classic diminished fifth to fifth to tonic chord progression that has released the little amount of tension that he'd already built up in the previous phrase. But then, he's getting close to the end of the piece, and that was by no means a grand enough climax. So next, rather than start fresh with tonic on a new phrase, he launches us right into a phrase made up entirely of diminished chords. And while diminished chords, especially ones that don't resolve, are a great way to build tension, it is quite sudden and out of the blue, as though Weber is demanding that you become excited now. But you know, Allison, I think we can forgive him, because <laughs> he does a great job of actually building up that diminished chord tension in the very next phrase with a proper chord progression, and then subtly dissipates that tension. And I really actually do like how he ends the piece, because here each of his phrases end on tonic, but rather than giving it time to settle, he launches right back into more progressions. He does this until he reaches a series of full range scales that each start on a different note of the E flat major chord. So this has built sufficient tension because we now have a clear-cut statement that the tonic chord is coming. But before we get to that, we do explore the world of the chromatic scale.
And in a final tension-building moment, Weber has the clarinet trill on the penultimate note of the E-flat major scale. We all know how scales end, so holding on to this second-to-last note makes us really crave that E-flat. Now Weber gives us what we want, and once he finally resolves it, we get a happy arpeggiated epilogue from the orchestra, all on that E-flat major scale. So I guess we can forgive him for his weird, diminished interjection. Yes, indeed, Weber really redeems himself with uh, giving us all what we want right here at the end. All that tension and release, he does it so well that it makes a really satisfying piece. And that really is quite a hallmark of the romantic style, is to really build up tension with extreme chords, and then finally, at the end, have a big, triumphant, grand statement of tonic. And I really like that. I think it's fun to listen to romantic pieces because of that reason. So we hope that you have enjoyed this 34th episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Remember that if you do like what we're doing, you can share it with your friends and leave some reviews for us on iTunes or Google Play. So for episode 34 of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, my name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The concertino in E-flat was performed by Michelle Zukowski. An invitation to the dance was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. Der Freischert's Overture was performed by the Skidmore College Orchestra. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes and Google Play to give us a rating or review. You can also like us on Facebook. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.